0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I'm very thankful this morning for the things that have already occurred in this assembly. I'm thankful for my father leading the men in prayer before the service began. From Deuteronomy 31 and verse 13, about fathers making known to children that knew nothing at all to fear the Lord. And then our brother bringing Psalm 78, the first 12 verses to us and exhorting fathers to their duty of teaching the wonderful things of God. And he did a wonderful job in explaining those 12 verses to us, and I hope that you are as convicted as he is, that I am. We all should be convicted. It all fits very well together. I'm thankful that the brother who chose Psalm 78 chose it without knowledge, that the proverb for this weekend would be Proverbs 4 and verse 2 about a father to his son, I give you good doctrine, Proverbs 4 and 2 reads. And then we had our introduction this morning before prayer from Deuteronomy 31. It all fits very well because Psalm 78 described the turning back of Israel. And what do we have in Romans chapter 11 but the turning back of Israel? Because their fathers did not faithfully teach them to be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ Instead, those fathers got themselves involved in idolatry over 1,500 years. Those fathers got themselves involved in worshiping the scriptures rather than the doctrine the scriptures gave. Those fathers got themselves involved in worshiping the gold of the temple rather than the God of the temple, right. and so forth and so on. It, re- it comes back to fathers' faithfulness in teaching children the truth. God has ordained that by fathers and by pastors, the truth is perpetuated in the world. And when fathers don't do their job, or pastors don't do their job, that truth can be lost. Hearers can be lost. Families can be lost. And it's a horrible thing for a family to be lost because a father didn't do his due diligence in teaching his children the wonderful works of God, the commandments of God, reminding them of the works of God and keeping them from being the rebellious generation the Bible describes of the Jews. Wives, I want to address you for a moment. The men in this church get exhorted to be manly men, godly men, great men. You have a responsibility to uphold your man. That means that you lift him up and exalt him, and praise him before his children. That means that whenever he says anything to the children, you do not add your two cents. And I am being very charitable by giving your two cents three cents more than it's worth. Shut up. When your husband is teaching the children Be quiet. He does not need your help. The help you give him destroys everything that has been taught thus far in this assembly. He does not need your help. If he made an error in interpretation, in the worst case, you can bring it up to him in private, very respectfully and very humbly, because you, the wife, are probably wrong. If you were a wise woman, you would never bring it up. Because you would get on your knees and thank the God of heaven that you have a husband, the father of your children, that is teaching them the word of God, and you would trust that between God and me, your pastor, I will correct your husband in due time. Every woman that wants to open her mouth in family devotions until it is asked for very directly undermines her husband and turns him into a eunuch. Discourages him from ever wanting to fulfill his role. You should be telling those children how thankful they should be for their father. You should not be telling them about you. You should be lifting up your father and praising him and encouraging him. You should be devotedly listening to every word that he utters in family devotions and humbling yourself before the instruction. It is a pity that so many fathers are missing today. They're AWOL. It is a great tragedy in the world, and it's a great tragedy in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the women are a great have a great deal to do with it by not remaining silent and upholding their husbands. In their body language, in their affection from their eyes, in their silence, in their praise, in their commendation and thankfulness about their husband, Encouraging the children to honor and adore the man that God gave them as their father. I have no more time for that. We must go to Romans 11. We have heard wonderful things this day. Israel lost the kingdom of God because their fathers didn't do the job they should have. And the fathers didn't do the job they should have. According to Isaiah chapter 3. Because the women were given too much say. And if there's ever been a generation where women are given too much say, it is this generation right now. Never in the history of mankind have women thought it their right to open their mouths like they do in this generation. And so I want to warn the women to be quiet. Lift up and build up your husband. The father is the teacher of families, not the mother. Find me the verse in the Bible that says mothers are to teach families. It's fathers in Joel chapter 1. It's fathers in Psalm 78. It's fathers in Deuteronomy 6. It's fathers in Deuteronomy 4. It's fathers in Deuteronomy 31. It's fathers in Ephesians chapter 6. It's fathers in Colossians chapter 3. It is never mothers. If you want effeminate children that cannot stand for the truth, then let their mother teach them. And don't yap to me about exceptions in the cases of Hannah and Lois and Eunice. Those are exceptions, and they're obvious exceptions, because they were not according to God's ordained plan for the family. I want to encourage every man that is in this assembly, don't you dare back down. I have just tried to do your dirty work by telling your wife to be quiet. Follow up. Tell her that she's doing what she ought not to do when she opens her mouth and disturbs and distracts and undermines you in family devotions or conversation at the supper table. The conversation at the supper table should be led by the father, not the mother. Let him lead it. He doesn't need your help. When he wants your help, he'll ask for your help. Let the father be the head of the home and accomplish what God wants accomplished in homes for the benefit of those homes according to the word of God. It's not because I'm a man. It's because this is what the Bible says. It is because I see a great lack and AWOL fathers everywhere I look and I'm discouraged and I want to help fathers. Women, you had your role. You brought the children into the world. Now let the husband and the father do something good with them. Oh, Lord, God, help all of our fathers and help the fathers of all the saints scattered abroad that they will stand up this day and be counted as mighty men of valor and that they will teach the word of God to their children who in turn shall teach it to their children. Every one of my seven sons that are sitting in here and every one of my sons by the gospel's sake in the kingdom of heaven, don't you dare back down. Don't you be discouraged. You be excited and challenged by the great role that God gave you. You stand up and be counted and you turn out some children that fear the Lord and love the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Romans chapter 11. I read to you verses 11 through 15. I say, then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Amen and amen. Amen. For those that might be viewing or listening to this sermon I would suggest that you read Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 through 46 in preparation for this chapter. My brethren, I give you good doctrine. There are wonderful things here and let's refresh ourselves very quickly with the first 10 verses. In verses 1 through 5, the apostle had started out Romans 11 by asking, has God cast away all the people of Israel? Has God cast away all the Jews? because his language appeared that way as chapter 10 ended. And he answers with the strongest negative there is in the Bible, God forbid. And then Paul appealed to himself in verse 1, I'm an Israelite, I'm of the seed of Abraham, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't cast away his people, which he foreknew. And when the Bible uses the word foreknowledge, Especially in Romans chapter 11, since it comes three chapters after Romans 8, it is referring to the foreknowledge of God that is part of the foundation of our eternal life. In Romans 8, 28 through 39, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate. And whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Past tense glorification, which hadn't taken place in, place in Paul's day, nor yet in our day, yet it's in the past tense, because when God foreknows someone, glorification is as good as done. And we should take great comfort in that. I have grieved that I went so quickly last Lord's Day through these ten verses because I would like to rest on that word foreknew in verse 2 for a long time to comfort you that God will never cast away those He foreknew. Jesus would say, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Don't you ever think God would cast you out if you've ever come to Him in believing faith and trusted in Him and obeyed Him from the heart? And then the apostle brings up an illustration from the Old Testament about the days of Elijah under Ahab and Jezebel, king and queen of Israel. How did Elijah, in a moment of discouragement and depression, complain to the Lord that there was no one left, that the nation was digging down God's altars, and that they were worshiping Baal, and in fact, they were trying to kill him, the only one left that worshiped the Lord Jehovah. And God responded to him, and here it is in the fourth verse, I have reserved to myself, and that is election, when God reserves men to himself. I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And then he goes on to take that Old Testament lesson and compare it to the New Testament situation of Romans 11. Even so then, in the exact same way of back then, it is happening the same way now. Even so then at this present time also. Also meaning there's two things being compared. Elijah's day, Paul's day. Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God has his elect people among the nation of Israel today, just like God had his elect people that he had reserved to himself in Elijah's day. And then verse 6 goes on to describe what the election of grace is based on. It is based on grace, and if it's based on grace, it is not based on works at all, because grace and works are antithetical, they're contradictory, they are opposites, they are mutually exclusive to each other. If it's by grace, it can't involve any work, or grace does not mean grace in its definition. If it's of works, then grace can't be involved. Otherwise, work would no longer mean work because work is wages earned and a debt incurred, not favor graciously given to those not deserving it. And so we have a wonderful definition of grace in verse 6. And verse 5 had told us that election, resulting in a remnant of a nation being preserved as God's foreknown people who were not cast away, was all of grace. What then? So, having given six verses, the apostle, who likes to draw conclusions so that you don't get lost in a run-on of many different arguments, draws a conclusion. What then? What can we conclude? Israel at large, Israel as the nation, hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. And we saw that Israel sought the righteousness of God so that they could be approved in the presence of God. Heaven would be theirs. Earthly preeminence and blessing would be theirs. But they sought it the wrong way because they stumbled at that stumbling stone of Christ Jesus. The election hath obtained it, these that are like the 7,000 Elijah's day. The election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. I wanted to rest for a while on the word rest. I'm thankful for a young lady in this assembly that went home and wrote me within a couple of hours of the preaching last Sunday who was affected by the rest. Because as you read through these first ten verses, those are two words you should think about. Right. The election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. I don't want to be part of the rest. I don't want you to be part of the rest. We should thank God we're not part of the rest. O oh Lord, have mercy upon us, and save us by your grace. What then? Israel... At large, the nation hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So in verse 7, we have the elect and we have the rest. The elect have obtained everlasting righteousness, reconciliation for iniquity, The end of sins, they're saved. They're the foreknown of God. God has not cast them away in any final or permanent way. And the rest are the opposite of all those things. And they were further blinded. And I add the word further because men are already blind by nature. But these were blinded further as God has done repeatedly to other blind categories of men. As I briefly showed you last Lord's Day. Then, verses 8 through 10 are two quotations, one from Isaiah 29 in verse 8, and then Psalm 69 in verses 9 and 10. So that we have three verses quoted in verses 8 through 10, and verse 7 has the two nouns, the election and the rest. And verse 11 has us a pronoun, they. Here we go. I say then. He started out verse 1 this way. He used this in verse 5, where he shortened it, or verse 7, excuse me, verse 7. What then? And here it is, I say then. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Whoever he's talking about, God forbid that they should fall by their stumbling but rather through their fall. Now wait a minute, Paul. I thought you said God forbid to the idea of them falling, and then you said, but through their fall. What are we supposed to believe, Paul? But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Have they stumbled? This is the most important verse in the chapter. The fourth word, the fifth word, they, is the most important word in the chapter. Because you've got to make a choice right now, and for those of you that want more, you can always come and ask for more. Because I don't want to spend my whole sermon giving reasons pro and con as to why we make certain decisions at rightly dividing the word of truth. But if there if, if there has ever been a verse in the Bible that needs a division to be made, it's Romans 11:11. 11, 11. You must identify the antecedent of that pronoun that is the fifth word, then you must understand and explain what in the word world does he mean by stumbling and falling but not falling but falling. Right. And those two things have to be done in this 11th verse. And before the God of heaven who knows I've spent over three decades on this chapter. Not all the time, of course. But making notes and studying and praying and trusting the Lord, I knew what I had to do in verse 11, but I wanted to make sure that it was the right thing to do, and I wanted to be able to substantiate it with significant evidence for the 10% in the assembly that care. And you know what? If you don't care, but you just want me to give the sense of the 11th verse... There is nothing ungodly about that. God makes every one of you hearers different. I'm married to one that's different. And I'm thankful that there's not two of us under the same roof. Because it's bad enough with one of us. And I don't mean her. She's of the 90. And I have spoken to some of you and you are of the 90. Give us the sense and draw out of it what we should get from these verses. But I know that there are 10% of you that will feel cheated. If you don't hear something and you're welcome to come to me and ask for a rough draft of this outline so that you can wade through it and see the arguments that have to be made to arrive at a conclusion that you can stand on, Lord have mercy. I say that. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Now when you look back, you find a pronoun, just a three words into back into verse 10. Now that pronoun, however, is coming out of quoted material. Uh, verses 10, 9, and 8. And so we don't want to look there specifically. We want to come back to 7, where we have the election and we have the rest. And we've got to decide, is this they the rest, or is this they the election? Gentiles are not under consideration. Can we safely say that? That Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, in verse 7. The election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So, we've made progress. We've cut out 95% of the earth's population by saying it doesn't apply to Gentiles. A simple answer would be going back three words and saying it's the they from verse 10, which would make it the uh, their fr- and them of verse 9, which would make it the them and they of verse 8, which would make it the rest that were blinded. But you need to go back all the way to 7 because that's where the comparison is. The three verses there are quoted material. We want to go back to the election and the rest. And this is just a little bit helpful in reminding you of that. Now, the apostle Paul had already established a group of elect Israelites that were blind. He's already taught us that in the final verses of chapter nine, and he has taught us that in the first four verses of chapter ten, where he said, brethren, my heart's desire for Israel is, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness which is of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. There were some unbelieving elect Jews that Paul wanted to see saved. And they are the very same Jews that are right here. Because if you cheat ahead, and cheating ahead is cheating, in one sense of the word, in a good sense of the word, but it helps you understand the 11th verse. Look at in verse 14, Paul said in Romans eleven fourteen, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. So he is referring the only ones that you can save with the gospel. Listen, if a salvation depends upon Paul's labors, it is gospel salvation. It is conversion. It is the fourth phase of salvation. It depends upon Paul. And Paul believes that he can save some of these, so they're elect Israelites. And we had elect Israelites in 10.1, where we had to make a choice. When we look at Romans 10.1, when we were there, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, we had to make a choice. What Israel is this? Is it the whole nation? Is it the elect part of the nation? Is it the reprobate part of the nation? How is Paul using these words? And by what's gone before in chapter 9 and what we understand by everything Paul taught us about salvation, we made a choice that was absolutely sure to us in ten one, Those are elect Israelites. And the Apostle Paul wants to see them saved from stumbling over the Lord Jesus Christ and trying to establish righteousness by Moses' law so that they would see that their righteousness had been completely fulfilled and brought in by the Lord Jesus Christ. These Israelites had fallen, had not fallen, and their fall was the benefit of the Gentiles. We get out of this verse. These Israelites had fallen, but there was still potential for them to be saved. Verse 14. No matter how you interpret the first ten verses, you've got to end up with this being elect Israel in verse 11. It has to be elect Israel. When we have the words in verse 11 here, Romans eleven eleven. Have they stumbled? Have they stumbled? That they should fall? We're not talking about someone that has blindness put upon them, that have been rejected by God, cast away, not part of the election, not in the election of grace, and have been blinded and their back is bowed down all way. Remember from Psalm 69 that the indictment there of this particular category of Israelites was perpetual and permanent. It wasn't only partial and only temporary. This falling away here in verse 11 is only partial and only temporary because the Apostle Paul believed he could undo it. And in verse 22 and verse 23, the Apostle himself is going to say they can be grafted in again for God is able to do that. They've got to be elect Israelites. This is the key to the chapter is at verse 11 you make a decision. You have to, by deduction, I'm going to give you more reasons why in a moment, that the they... In that question Paul asks, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall, is the elect part. He has already stated and declared that the non-elect part has fallen, has stumbled, it's not partial, it's not temporary, it's permanent. And he backs it up by quoting Old Testament Scripture. We apply the uh, pronoun they to elect Israel. And the election that took place back here in verse 7 is the election to eternal life. And Paul is drawing a conclusion and he's going to proceed from this point forward dealing only with elect Israelites. And we know that because he can save them in verse 14, they can be grafted in again in verse 23, and they are in the election in verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. We see an election to eternal life in the first 10 verses, which means that the pronoun in verse 11 cannot apply to the rest because it would be applying to reprobates. Cannot do that. It's an election in the first 10 verses to eternal life based on the word for new, Based on the fact that the election in verse 28, they are in it though they are blind to the gospel. So that in verse 7, the election cannot be set in opposition to blindness. Because in verse 28, they are elect and blind. So the first 10 verses have to be more than elect Israel, separated into two categories of the blind portion and the not-blinded portion. If we did that, we would have a double election in these verses of Romans 11. We would say... What then? Elect Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. We would have a double election of election to eternal life, then an election to gospel benefits, which we don't have yet, because we have some stumbling and falling. And the issue is, in verse 10, we have just concluded three, quote, three verses of quotation stating, That there is a part of Israel cast off, not foreknown, not part of the remnant, not in the election of grace, that didn't obtain what they sought for, that are the rest, and that are blinded finally and permanently and totally. And he says, I say then, Because I've already introduced this category of elect Israelites to you that were stumbling over the gospel in chapter 9 and chapter 10, I want to deal more with them. I say then, have they, that is the elect portion, stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. They did not fall the way the rest fell. The rest fell under God's rejection and casting off of them, they have only fallen from gospel privileges, and that, for a larger reason, that I am now explaining to you that salvation would go to the Gentiles. So they didn't fall finally, they didn't fall totally, they only fell partially, and that is from an understanding of the gospel. And if we will work together, I as the apostle of the Gentiles speak to you Gentiles, If you will have compassion toward these people, we can save some of them because they can be grafted in again. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. 28 explains 11. And we cheat by going ahead to get it. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but it's touching the election. What election? It's got to be the election in context. So they're in the election, but they're blind. They have stumbled, but they haven't really fallen. They haven't fallen from grace. They haven't fallen from God's eternal plan for them. They have fallen from the kingdom of heaven and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and believing on Him so that that preaching of Christ would be redirected in this transitional generation between John the Baptist and the destruction of Jerusalem to the Gentiles. And by 70 AD, it was turned entirely to the Gentiles because there really wasn't any Israel left. And this is what we have through this chapter, and we, we we need to take it verse by verse we we understand the word for no in verse two to be important to us we understand the election in verse eleven in verse twenty eight to be important to us we understand the word always that verse ten ends with see that alway does not give Paul very much hope does it that alway having their back bowed down alway if you remember from psalm sixty nine it was He would give them so much fear, their loins would shake continually. And then he goes on to describe, let iniquity be added to their iniquity. Let them not be written with the righteous. Do you remember some of that language? That is a non-elect portion of Israel. This has to be elect. And you say, but I'm getting so uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable? I've spent 33 decades uncomfortable. But I'm comfortable. And I want you to be comfortable. What am I saying that for? That pronoun there, they, can't I just trace it back into verse 10, then into verse 9, then into verse 8? Yes. And then you end up with it being the rest. And you have these not-elect persons that Paul is trying to save, and we end up in a great contradiction. We end up with them being elect in verse 28, but not elect in verse 7. And we end up in confusion. This is permanent in verses 8 through 10. By the, by the quotation of Psalm 69 and by the Apostle Paul's word by the Spirit right here of Alway. And we don't want a double election in verses 5 through 7, which you will end up with if you're not careful. There is a mystery in verse 25. And there is no mystery that some of Israel was blind because that was quoted from one end of the New Testament to the other end. That Israel was blind, but there is a mystery that the Apostle Paul is unveiling right now. And that is that blindness in part has happened to elect Israel. Because it goes on to say in verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. If all Israel is going to be saved, then what Israel are we talking about in this 11th chapter? Elect Israel. They shall all be saved. How shall they be saved? By the Lord Jesus Christ at His first coming. Quoted here out of Isaiah. It's in the future tense because it's one of those places of prophetic perspective where from Isaiah's standpoint it was future, but from Paul's standpoint it was past. And all Israel shall be saved, and yet blindness in part had been put on some of them, and that blindness in part is the stumbling here over Christ that was sort of a fall, but not a fall like the non-elect fell. I say then, it's amusing how easily we are influenced by the tone I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? That would make it sound like we're appealing back to verse 10. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? That sounds like we're appealing back to the elect of verse 7. I'm just showing you how tricky the mind can be. Now, someone will say, I don't like looking that far back for an antecedent. Well, you're not looking very far back at all because verses 8 through 10, as far as looking for an antecedent, don't count. They're quotations. We want to go back to verse 7, the election, the rest. And so when we come to the word they, because he's going back to what he last said, not to what he quoted, he's going back to what he last said, and we find the they has to be elect. Because he's going to save some of them, they're going to be grafted in again, And they're in the election because verse 28 tells us they're in the election. No matter the interpretation of what you do in the first 10 verses, and nobody but the 10% should even hear that sentence. And you can come to me and ask any time. Either there's an election to eternal life and a rejection from eternal life in the first 10 verses, or it is an election to gospel privileges and a rejection from gospel privileges in the first 10 verses. And it doesn't matter what you do in those first 10 verses, because at verse 11, we've all got to be on the same path. And the same path is the they must be elect Israel. Right. Because the rest of the chapter is about elect Israel. The distance from a pronoun to its an antecedent, I gave you an illustration from Psalm 105 that I hope you'll always remember. Do you remember? It's very, very interesting. Verses 36 and 37, you've got to sort them out and realize the Lord expects me to look at the whole context here and see what is said about this pronoun all the way back to understand who it is here. And the next verse is someone else, though the time I can find that antecedent is even farther back. And so how do you, how do you find in any reading the antecedent of a pronoun? By its context, what is said about the pronoun and what is said about the pronoun in Romans chapter 11 tells us, it is the elect Israel. Right. And so we go forward. He's already made this distinction in chapter 10 when he showed elect Israel. And he's already shown that elect Israel stumbled over Christ in the last part of chapter 9 and in those first four verses of chapter 10. I say then, have they elect Israel stumbled that they elect Israel should fall? God forbid. See, they haven't fallen they haven't been blinded and stumbled to such an extent that they're cast off by God. It's just a short-term, partial blindness and stumbling for them for a greater and higher purpose for you and for me. That the gospel would be redirected to the Gentiles. But rather, instead of it being a final fall, instead of it being a final blindness, instead of a total, perpetual blindness, it is a partial, temporary blindness that salvation has come unto the gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now what kind of jealousy are we talking about here? The jealousy of a reprobate or the jealousy of an elect? Can you can you provoke a reprobate unregenerate man to jealousy that would cause him to be saved or jealousy in any positive sense of the word? Nope. No. You've got to be regenerate. Right. And then you've and to be regenerate you've got to be elect. I say then, have they, elect Israel, stumbled that they, elect Israel, should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their, elect Israel fall, which was losing some of their, their gospel sight, which was not being able to see Christ, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. They've only fallen temporarily here. Notice verse 22 says, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. How in the world could a, could a non, could an elect Gentile be cut off? Cut off in the same way elect Jews were cut off. Notice, there's a warning here that they can be cut off. So it's a cut off. It's not a loss of eternal life. It's being cut off from gospel privileges, from church privileges, from kingdom privileges. And those things are very important as we want to see quickly here. That they should fall. Let's just move on. This fall is temporary. It is, not, it is partial. It is from gospel privileges. It is from seeing Christ and believing on Him. Because that's what it says in verse 28 as concerning the gospel. When it comes to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are enemies... For your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved. Beloved of whom? Beloved of God. They are God's children for the Father's sakes. Meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because you'll notice that uh, in verse 28, the apostrophe is outside the S, meaning it's the plural fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God would always leave them a seed. And so he did. Okay, God forbid, but rather, God has not cast them away. God has foreknown them. They haven't lost their standing with God. They haven't lost eternal life. They've only stumbled over Christ and gospel privileges so that Christ and gospel privileges could be presented to you, Gentiles. But rather, through their fall, this partial, temporary fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. This salvation is gospel salvation. It's conversion. It's the practical phase of salvation. It's a glorious phase of salvation. We had a brother already stand in the pulpit this morning and say that if we don't remember the gospel, as it's taught in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, we of all men are most miserable. If we don't remember the gospel, our lives end up being hopeless. Our hope is because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It includes the resurrection from the dead. And that gives us hope. And so many more verses could be appealed to, but you have been taught so many times, none of you should be wondering what I'm talking about when I say gospel salvation, when I say conversion, when I say the fourth phase or the practical phase of salvation. It is not what eternal life is dependent upon. It is what earthly blessings are dependent upon. It's what the church relationship is dependent upon. It is what being in the kingdom of heaven is dependent upon. It is what hope and joy and peace is dependent upon, knowing that Jesus Christ has fully satisfied the sin issue for you, and you have everlasting righteousness. That was taken away from some of God's elect Jews so that the gospel would be redirected to the Gentiles and it was redirected to the Gentiles in one generation. Salvation is coming to the Gentiles. Oh, thank you, Lord. And you know we could turn to the passages in Acts but we've already turned to them in previous weeks in which the apostle would first preach to Jews because Jesus had told him to first preach to Jews. The gospel is first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Acts chapter 1. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. When you move into Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, they were preaching where? Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, Philip went down to Samaria. Acts chapter 13, Paul's across the Mediterranean Sea in Turkey. Antioch of Pisidia. And the Gentiles, the Gentile proselytes are sitting in that church in Acts chapter 13. And they hear the things that Paul says and they believe what he showed them from the Old Testament scriptures. And they told Paul they wanted to hear it preached again. And the next time Paul gathered the assembly, almost the whole city came together. But the Jews were envious. A productive envy or a condemning envy? A condemning envy. And Paul said to them, when they were, when they blasphemed and opposed his gospel, it was proper. That the gospel should first have been preached to you. But since you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. So as early as Acts 13, the gospel is being redirected. And so it it was a generational issue. This is a transitional generation from the old covenant to the new covenant. They ran side by side for 40 years. The Apostle Paul, even as late as Acts chapter 21, when he came back to Jerusalem, he came with an offering for his nation. And the Apostles pulled him aside and said, Brother, do you see how many thousands of Jews there are that believe? And they've all heard that you preach against Moses, you preach against the law, you preach against this place. Will you take a vow and go into the temple and do something Jewish? just so you understand that? The two covenants are running side by side. Well, was there ever a time when there was a chapter written and said, Now it's over? Or did God just end the whole thing when a plow was pulled across the top of Mount Zion and ended the Jewish system? Because, you know, he was saying it all along. What did Jesus say to the woman of Samaria as early as John 4? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming in which your fathers and the fathers in Jerusalem are not going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. God is seeking a whole new kind of a worshiper as early as John 4. Jesus is explaining it. The Apostle explained it. It's called the time of Reformation in Hebrews 9.10. And then the whole Old Testament covenant was just destroyed when the temple was pulled down, the stones ripped apart, the priesthood killed, the altar, everything disappeared. Right. Have you ever seen the Arch of Titus in Rome where they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Rome? The Ark of the Covenant was in Rome. Right. All destroyed. That covenant had ended and God's dealing with them. God said to them, your house is left unto you desolate. That temple was no longer his temple. It's left to you desolate. It's your house. It's not mine. Earlier in his ministry, he had called it his father's house of prayer. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. And this salvation is the preaching of the gospel. Because this gospel salvation is what chapter 10 had described How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And who was sent first and big time to the the Gentiles? The Apostle Paul. Because look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. I am explaining to you what God is doing, and I happen to be at the forefront of that, of of redirecting this gospel to the Gentiles. And it was to provoke them to jealousy. The them, at the last part of verse 11, is the same as the they in the first part. It's got to be elect, because it's to provoke them to jealousy that's a good jealousy. This good jealousy is called, in verse 14, emulation, which is another word like jealousy, and it can result in some of them being saved. Verse 12. Now if the fall of them... Now wait a minute. I I thought he said God forbid in verse 11. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Then verse 12. Now if the fall of them? Yes. It's not the final fall. It's not the permanent fall of the non-elect from verses 7 through 10. The rest. It is the elect temporarily, partially, falling away by being blinded to the Lord Jesus Christ so that the gospel could get redirected. They didn't fall from God's plan. They didn't fall the book of life. They didn't fall out of the election of grace. They were still part of the remnant, but they were a blinded part of the remnant, which he tells you in verses 25 and 28. And I have to move on now. Uh, but but anyone, who the 10% that want more, I'll give you more. And uh, we can... Rejoice in the scriptures together. And sometimes they're more difficult than others. And when the Lord gives us some light on them, we're thankful. And we praise His glorious name. Now if the fall of them, these elect Israelites, be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them, these elect Israelites, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more there, these elect Israelites, fullness of getting them converted. The, the, the purpose right here is for the apostle to stir up these Gentiles so that they would feel toward these Jews the same way Paul felt toward them. There's two things to get out of these verses. Really. Two. One. Love the unconverted elect and do what you can to save them. Two. Be careful, or you can be one of God's unconverted elect by God taking the truth and the gospel away from you for you neglecting it and not bringing forth the fruits meet thereof. Because he's going to describe the goodness and the severity of God and that severity could fall on Gentiles very easily, more easily than it fell on Jews because they weren't even natural branches belonging in the tree. And so right now, I want you to understand these five verses are trying to stir up These Gentiles, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. Listen to me explain this to you. They they're the only reason they're unbelieving, the overwhelming reason, the overriding reason, is for you Gentiles to be converted. I want to see them saved. Now, if their lack of belief is your riches, just think what it's going to be like when some of them are saved. Do you know what it would have been like to have had this explained to you and have this understood to see a Jewish convert around 71 A.D.? Do you know how exciting that would have been for a Gentile church in some city like Corinth where there was a population of Jews? See, converted Jews because the gospel of the kingdom was most fully established when Jesus Christ came in power in judging his enemies in 70 A.D.? That event was was tremendous. That's why Jesus said in, in, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, He said, there be some of you standing here, and He wasn't talking to Gentiles, there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man come in His kingdom, come in power. Right, right. And what effect was that going to have on elect Israelites by 71? They were going to believe again. It was going to be the fullness again. I believe that this passage is transitional and generational. There is nothing 2,000 years long here. This is ridiculous to even think that. These are Jews that Paul himself personally was going to try to save. Paul is not trying to save Jews that were going to be born 2,000 years later. If you go through this passage, and this is not for today, but if you go through it and look for every verb tense and every description, it is at this present time, now, now, it's for that period. You say, you get 70 A.D. into everything. Oh, no, I don't. Why don't you go back and listen to a few sermons called what I, about what I think of preterism. And I have to defend that every every week. No, I don't see everything fulfilled in 70 A.D., But I will tell you this, that that transitional generation was of incredible importance in the New Testament and to not see it or to underestimate it is to leave yourself blind as to much of the New Testament. Do you remember how useful it was in the book of Hebrews for us to understand that some of those severe warnings that God gave to Hebrews, obviously Hebrews refers to Jews, those warnings were tied to what was going to happen to their nation in 70 A.D. This transitional generation was to get the gospel to the Gentiles. By 70 A.D., How many apostles were running around preaching to Jews only? Anybody want to raise their hand and take a stab at this one? First of all, how many apostles were running around? None. How many were running around preaching to Jews only? None. The gospel had been completely redirected. Do you know what it's called in verse 25? The fullness of the Gentiles. You say, I thought the fullness of the Gentiles meant when all the Gentiles are saved. Do you really believe that? I thought the fullness of the Gentiles was when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Oh, no. why are you comparing fullness of the Gentiles with the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled? Why would you take the word fullness of the Gentiles in verse 25 and make it any, difference, any, any different in meaning than the fullness of the elect Jews in verse 12? It's not a time prophecy. It's a fullness prophecy. As soon as the gospel was fully redirected, that blindness was lifted. It was a temporary generational blindness on some elect Israelites to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, if the fall of the, now listen, brethren, it's time. And you know what I mean by that. So briefly, and I'm way short of my goal for the day. Verse 12. Now, if the fall of them, this is the partial temporary fall from believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and having church and gospel and kingdom privileges. If the fall of these elect Israelites be the riches of the world. And this is what I'm going to end with. Verse 12, the riches of the world. Do you understand what it means to have and to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what it means to have the riches Of the Gentiles. Do you know what it means to have the church of Jesus Christ. The temple of the living God. The house of God. The habitation of the Spirit. Do you know what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God on earth with David's son sitting on a throne reigning over you? It is called the riches of the Gentiles. This is the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world to Gentiles. The gospel was redirected to them so that the tabernacle of David was rebuilt, Acts 15, verses 14 through 18, with Gentile converts. Do you... Do you appreciate this day, at this hour, sitting in this house, that the gospel has come to you, you idolatrous sun-worshipping, moon-worshipping, child-sacrificing, stone-worshipping, insect-worshipping, pagan perverts? I speak of my Father's house. And all of us together. This is the greatest thing that ever happened to the Gentiles. I want you to see some... Listen, I want you to see some words in this passage and not just be thinking about the technical difficulties of interpreting it correctly, but thinking about some of the words that should leap off the page at us. This is the riches of the Gentiles. Among all the nations of the earth, whether you look at the Far East and the Asian nations, Or you look at the North American and South American continents whenever they were populated. And you look at that little tiny nation of Israel. Those were God's people. That was God's kingdom on earth. They only had the truth. They only knew about His coming Son. They only were in subjection to David their king. God took that from them because they did not worship Him properly and gave it to Gentile nations. It's called the riches of the Gentiles. What makes Gentiles rich? Their inventions in any field of science? Their learning in any field of philosophy? Their accomplishments in any field of athletic endeavor? What is the riches of the Gentiles? It is the kingdom of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what is exciting about this passage. And the apostle is saying to them, Now listen. My Gentile brethren, remember, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, verse 13. I am the apostle of the Gentiles. Remember, I have something very specific to teach you because I am leading this redirection of the gospel. If the fall of these elect Israelites from their gospel privileges are your riches and the diminishing of them are your riches, how much more their fullness when they're converted back in, are you, he's saying to the church at Rome, are you with me on the importance of what I said in Romans 10.1? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And if I could save some of them by provoking them to emulation, what a wonderful thing it would be! Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, Jews and Gentiles. That was the apostles' driving ambition. And it should be the church at Rome and the church in Greenville as well. Now, if the fall of them—that is, losing gospel privileges—be the riches of the world; that's gaining gospel privileges, and the diminishing of them. Do you know what? Do you know what? It, what the description is when you no longer have the gospel, no longer have the church, and no longer have the kingdom? It's a diminishing of your value. I love these words. They were diminished. They were put in poverty. The Gentiles were made rich. How much more their fullness when some of those Jews would convert. And the Apostle Paul was confident that before he died, he would get some of them. And he died before 70 A.D. You know, when he uses the word some, down here in verse 14, might save some of them. Let me quote it one more time. There be some of you... There be What? There be some of you standing here That shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming. The sum that Jesus was talking about was the sum that the Apostle Paul was after and was the sum that these Gentiles should be after. I want to just go ahead and tell you if we really cheated, if we really cheated and went to chapter 15, we would find out that the Apostle Paul is extracting money out of the church at Rome to take back to Jerusalem for the Israelites there to further the spread of the gospel to these elect Jews. you want to see it? It's, it's chapter 15, it's verse 25. I, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. I want you to notice the language. Their debtors. They are, for if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. And so there was going to be money being transferred across the Mediterranean to the church of the Jews in Jerusalem for the taking care of those poor saints and the spread of the gospel in that place. Toward whom? Toward these elect Israelites. And the Apostle Paul was wanting to save some of them. But we're going to end with verse 12. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world... Do you appreciate what you have? I share emails with you from time to time to make you realize that if you didn't have a church, it's lonely. And if you feel lonely in the church, it's because you are not doing your job in the church. Remember, you all agreed with me when you joined this church and you all agreed with everyone else that the church is not where you go to get loved. The church is where you go to love. And if you love like you're supposed to, you will be loved in return. If you will encourage and praise and lift others up in the Lord like you're supposed to be doing, they will in turn lift you up and encourage you in the Lord. If you are using the church like you should be using it, it's a wonderful blessing. We are in the kingdom of God on earth. The Son of David is on its throne. That is a fabulous blessing. The kings of the earth... The kings of the Gentiles came to hear any words that would drop from Solomon's lips. And I want to tell you, one greater than Solomon sits on our throne. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 In him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's our David. That's our son of David. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. If the fall of them be the riches of the world, (laughs) the greatest thing that ever happened to the Gentiles was not the... Discovery of America. I'm sorry to hurt your feelings. Okay? It wasn't Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492. It wasn't Plymouth Rock. The riches of the Gentiles is having the gospel preached to them. Right. And our our first fathers in Antioch of Pisidia, I'm repeating myself, in Acts 13... How many times can you read it and stop celebrating at the end? You can't. They were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. They couldn't believe it. Do you know how many people came out the next Sabbath? The whole city. The whole city came out. That is wonderful. You read Acts 28 last night? Did you hear Paul so gently sit down and say, I was on trial for my life? And they brought charges, like the Jews brought charges against me in Palestine that they were not founded, but I didn't want to do anything against my nation. Did you see his political skill when he was on, yeah. depending on what audience he was speaking to? He said but it, was, it was for the hope of Israel that I was in chains. And some of them believe he, you know, from morning till evening, he opened the scriptures to them. You know, somebody recently testified about Jesus on the road to Emmaus, opening the scriptures to those two disciples and how their hearts burned within them. Mm -hmm. You know, reading Acts 28, my heart's burning within me to have sat there and listened to the Apostle Paul go from Psalm to Psalm to Isaiah to Isaiah to Jeremiah to Zechariah to, to Micah and point out that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled them all. Some believed, some didn't believe. But before Paul would let them go, he said, I want to remind you of that prophecy that's quoted six times that God said He was going to blind our nation and then the Gospel would go to the Gentiles. Did you see that in Acts 28? Right. This is the riches of the Gentiles. If somebody ever tells you that the word world has to mean every single person ever born on this planet, this verse gives you a definition of the word world that excludes all Jews. It shows that the word world is, the, is a noun for the gentiles because notice the parallelism in verse 12 first half of the verse compares the fall of them with the riches of the world the second half of the verse repeating the same thing and the diminishing of them the riches of the gentiles so what does the word world mean in Romans 11:12 it means the gentiles what does it mean in John 3:16 the very same thing what does it mean in 1 John 2:2 the very same thing for God so loved the world, the world of his elect among the Gentiles, which was absolutely shocking news to Nicodemus. 1 John 2, 2, written by John, who was not apostle to the Gentiles, but an apostle to the Jews, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, elect Israel, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, meaning those of all nations, God's elect among those nations. Right. From this verse... But that's just a little side point. What I want to leave you with today is these two thoughts. Well, there's more thoughts, but uh, this one for sure. The riches of the world. Do you understand that? It's repeated. The riches of the Gentiles. What is the greatest thing that ever happened to the Gentiles? We send our children to 17 years of school. K through 12 is 13. Four more, 17. Some of you get master's degrees, so that's 19 years or some ridiculous number, and they read all about Western civilization, history of mankind, and all that. And You know, they look at buildings, and they look at discoveries, and they look at territories, and they look at all this stuff. But do you know what the riches of the Gentiles is? Kingdom and gospel privileges of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And for Gentile nations to have within them little churches here and there, that are outposts of the kingdom of God on earth under King David. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the riches of the Gentiles. And what effect should it have on us here? Should we be glorying in the fact that God cut off some branches? Oh, no. Should we be glorying in a reprobate part of national Israel? Oh, no. We should be getting geared up to be like the Apostle Paul in perspective. My heart's desire... And prayer to God for his elect everywhere, including these Israelites, is that we might save some of them. I wish you had a pastor, but the one you've got, I hope that you'll love the word of Romans 11. And may God bless us this day to give him worship that is worthy from Gentiles who have received the kingdom of God. Amen.